about Fly Fishing Internet Radio, your source for learning more about fly fishing in cold water, warm water, and salt water. Hello, I'm Roger Maves, your host for tonight's show. On this broadcast, we'll be featuring Kurt Finlayson, and he'll be answering your questions on fighting and landing trout. The show will be 90 minutes in length, and we're broadcasting live over the Internet. If you'd like to ask Kurt a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and use the Q&A text box to send us your question. Receive your question immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. And while you are there, make sure you sign up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. You'll see a form in the right-hand column of our web pages. Just fill in your name and email address, and we'll keep you informed. This broadcast it is being recorded and will be available for playback on our website about 48 hours after the show ends. So if you have to leave early... You can return to our website at your convenience and listen to the recording at any time. The content of this broadcast is copyrighted and is the property of the Knowledge Group, Inc., doing business as Ask About Fly Fishing. Recordings or transcriptions of this program cannot be distributed or sold in any form. When we return, we'll be talking with Kurt about fighting and landing trout. Baja Fly Fishing Company is dedicated to fulfilling your vacation dreams. And just so there's no mistake, they derive as much pleasure helping a novice improve as they do fishing with a pro. From the casual to the hardcore, they can match your expectations with their experience and coaching. A vacation with the Baja fly fishing is more than a fishing trip. It's a full-on Baja experience that you will remember forever. They know the Baja after 40 years of traveling its back roads, kayaking its shoreline, surfing and snorkeling while pioneering the fly fishing techniques that have evolved into the tactics used today. They are well-versed in fly fishing the beach, in kayaks, on pongas, and are well-versed in all tackle types. Join them in pursuit of roosterfish, dorado, marlin, sailfish, wahoo, jack creval, yellowfin, skipjack, and many other species. Learn more about Baja Fly Fishing Company by visiting their website at BajaFlyFish.com. Again, that's BajaFlyFish.com. Before we introduce Kurt, I'd like to let you know about the great prizes we have to give away tonight. For our drawing tonight, we'll be giving away a one-year membership to the Fly Fishers International and a one-year subscription to Fly Fishing and Tying Journal. So you have two chances to win tonight in our drawing. Now, if you haven't registered yet for the drawing, you can do so now. Just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and look for the link under Kirk's section that says uh, click here to register for our drawing. Click on that link and fill out the form, and we'll announce the winners at the end of the show. We'll also be giving away a book of your choice from a selection of books from Stackpole Books. And here's how you can win that book. You've got to be the first person to answer the question we ask at the end of the show. And the question will be about something Kurt and I talk about during the show. Yeah, and submit your name and location along with your answer on the text box on our home page. And, um, and the first one to submit wins. So um, the correct answer, of course. So, uh, you know, listen up, take notes, and uh, hopefully you'll win a book. Our guest tonight is Kurt Finlayson and... Kurt had started fishing flies for bluegill as a kid in the Brazos River in Texas. But it was his family vacations to the Yellowstone River with this, uh, that inspired his first love of fly fishing. Some of his earliest fly fishing memories were casting stone flies to rising Yellowstone cutthroat below Lahardy Rapids. After moving to Utah, he fished his local waters as well as Idaho, Wyoming, and Montana. Living out of his car for days on end, he was a self-confessed fishing dirtbag. He settled in Cache Valley in northern Utah to start a career in the fitness industry as well as a family that includes his wife and three daughters. In 2006, opportunity knocked when one fly organizer and legendary fly fishing personality, Jack Dennis, 
asked him to join Fly Fishing Team USA in the Australian Oceana Championships. This event introduced him to amazing anglers, and he, he and his team came back with a bronze medal and left Kurt wanting to learn more about his new friends, about competition methods in rivers and in still waters. From that time to his competitive fly fishing retirement in 2016, Kurt fished over 30 regional and national competitions across the U.S., winning multiple team and individual medals. He was asked to help coach the U.S. youth fly fishing team in multiple clinics and to then to a gold medal in the Youth World Championships in Slovakia. He is also a commercial fly designer at Rainey's Premium Flies, with the Dirty Politician being his most popular pattern, probably very popular today. Right, Kurt? <laughs> he has fished <laughs> on four continents and landed over 55 species and is currently on the hunt for grass carp and sturgeon on the fly. Kurt, welcome to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. Thanks, Roger. My pleasure. Yeah, I just couldn't re- resist the dirty politician <laughs> comment. Uh, yeah, that... turn off the news. Yeah, and it's it's just terrible. Anyway, let's talk about fishing. <laughs> Absolutely. That's my. Uh, it's funny, is because my grandson, who's four years old, um, we were taking care of him, and uh, we sat down to dinner, and he, we said, "Where do you want to sit?" He wanted to sit at the head of the table, and um, we all sat down, and we're, we're just about ready to start to eat, and he says. Um, I would like to know if we could talk about park rangers. <laughs> I go, we look at each other and we go, okay, sure, we can talk about park rangers. <laughs> and it was just the way he said it that was just kicked us uh, sideways because uh, it was just a four-year-old being so trying to be very adult-like. So anyway, let's can we talk about fishing? <laughs> we'll segue yeah. into that. So, you know, with all that experience on the road, uh, fishing competitions, I imagine that fighting and hooking and uh, and um, getting that fish into the net was super important, um, no matter what the size, right? Yeah, absolutely. And it's, and it's something, you know, people new to competition really don't understand the, the importance of and you know, we, we would often get done with the competition and people would get back on the, on the, on the travel bus and they'd be like, oh man, I caught so many fish. I just couldn't get them to the net. And in, in competition <laughs> fishing, that's, that's what matters. And, you know, I, I guess when I, before competition fishing, I, I used to count fish that came up and ate my dry fly, even if I didn't get them all the way to the, to the net. But that, that doesn't work in competition. So yeah. Uh, fighting the fish and landing it in the net are, are a critical part of it. And even for the pleasure fishermen, you know, being able to put a fish in the net is a feeling of accomplishment. And, and frankly, we all like to take a picture of a beautiful fish. So yeah, yeah. it's pretty important. Yeah, sometimes it's, you know, just touching them is good enough for me if it saves me <laughs> unhooking them <laughs> and messing around, you know. So, uh, but uh, but that's not nearly as serious. But but we all we never know. We never know when that that fish of a lifetime could be on the other end. And and you do want them in that net. And you do want a, a picture. So um, so tonight's topic is is super important. I think for everybody. Um, and um, uh, so let's dig in. Um, you know, we'll talk about rivers or streams first, and then. And then I know uh, we'll, we'll end on uh, still waters because a lot of this carries over there, but we also have some other challenges in still waters that we don't have on rivers and streams. So we'll, uh, we'll talk about that uh, later on, but let's start out with rivers and streams. So um, 
hooks you how important are hooks do you have a preference type of hook strength uh, shape uh, what tell us about that yeah well in competition fishing we're, we're mostly fishing uh, nymphs so um, I tie a lot of my flies on nymph hooks whether that's you know, my, my personal favorite, I, I really like the, the, the older Tiemco 2499 SPBLs. Um, Umclos come out with a, their brand of, uh, their line of competition. And then I used to use quite a bit of Napic hooks when those were first coming out just because they were, man, they were just such good quality hooks. And, uh, you know, those are all barbless hooks, which that is, it's a rule in competition to use barbless hooks, so. Um, absolutely the you know I think the hook brand is extremely important yeah the um, now you had um, uh, what about fine wire hooks that's something that yeah yeah and I, I'd gone through a lot of different um, a lot of different hooks when I very first started getting into competition fishing you know in 2006, there wasn't a whole lot out there, and so what I was trying to do was really learn from uh, literally the UK, the, the Europeans that, were, that had already been doing this. And so a lot of it was just trial and error. And so, you know, I dug into some of the partridge hooks. They had a line called Lightning, and at that time I was really interested in trying to get the lightest weight dry fly hooks for um, dry dropper fishing. And... Man, I just got really uh, did not like those fine wire hooks, and mostly because I felt like a fish, you know, by changing their angle, moving around, fighting the fish, I felt like that fine wire hook could really get kind of oval out the side, the, the penetration mark of the of the hook, and, and I felt like I was losing fish to that. I wasn't quite so worried about the strength of it. I just felt like it was pretty easy to, to lose a fish due to that coming out, with, especially with the barbless. So it was the, a matter of, of it not seating well because of the fineness of the hook. Exactly. And, and some of the, the manufacturers started going with some different things, um, some slight bends in the hook to try to get a little bit better, like you said, seat. Um, uh, I can't think of the the brand that was doing that. Even I was recently given a bunch of really old fly tying stuff, and there's actually a herder's hook um, mm-hmm. that was barbless, mm-hmm. and it was produced. It had to have been produced in the 50s or 60s, and it's got a, a pretty dramatic bend in it. And it's again to replace that um, the barb. But when you have that fine wire hook with no barb at all, I became very uh, against those. <laughs> Yeah. Um, Joe Herndon in Richmond, Texas, wrote in, and he said, uh, any particular notes on what works best with size 20 or smaller hooks? Um, is there anything special you need to know about those smaller hooks as far as getting hooked up and fighting? Well, you know, in competition, I am rarely going below a size 18 um, mm. a nymph. Now, one of the things that I have been doing just recently is uh, doing some micro fishing. I've been fishing for like uh, shiners and days, you know, fish that are three inches long. In fact, this weekend I got back from Idaho, and this is this is real visual fishing. And I I pulled out some size 22 flies, maybe they were even 24s that I had. They were nymphs, 
and I could see these fish, and they were absolutely ignoring those those really small flies. And I finally bumped back up to some size 18 with no weight on them, you know, no beads, and I started taking fish. And I'm, you know, I'm I'm, I'm not saying that you can't catch fish on size 20, 22, 24, um, but from my experience, um, I, I'm rarely fishing those those really small sizes. I have fished them on tail waters. I don't think, um, you know, I wouldn't say that there's any anything that stands out. I guess I guess I do like a little bit wider gap in that, like I said, the 2499 SPVL, just because like on a nymph hook, I think you have that wider gape and, you, and you're going to have a, a little bit better hook set on those really small flies. Have you ever found any limits on small hooks versus larger fish? In other words, hooks just breaking? Um, or is it usually the tippet that will break before the hook? I mean, because you, you, with those small hooks, you're probably using pretty fine tippet as well, right? Exactly. I mean, again, talking micro fishing, you know, in fact, I was fishing too heavy of, of tippet, quite frankly. I, I, ha- I know I've got some 8X laying around, and I should have been using that to try to get down a little bit better. But in terms of limits for a small hook and a larger fish, uh, to me, like I said, I, I don't like the fine wire, and as you get into the smaller hooks, that, that, that wire gets pretty fine. Yeah. But, um, yeah. I, I don't think there is, and, and everybody knows knows somebody that's landed an over-20-inch fish on a smaller-than-size 20 hook, you know. Right, yeah, yeah. Um, the 2020 uh, Club. Yeah. Uh, how do you avoid having a barbless hook come loose when you're fighting the fish? Any techniques regarding that? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, that all comes down to uh, keeping a tight line. You know, guides say it all the time. You've probably heard your dad say it. Keep tight, keep tight. And uh, getting the line tight to the fish um, is important. I also think fighting the fish at kind of as few of angles as possible. And and when you're fighting fish, um, it's all about the angles, and if a fish is, you know, uh, charging left and charging right, and you're constantly having to flip your rod over, and it's constantly changing that angle, um, I think that that hurts uh, your opportunity to to land a fish. And so, the more that you can keep that at one angle, I think the the better chance you have with a barbless hook. I also think a rod plays quite a bit into it, as far as as the type of rod that you're using with a barbless hook. Okay, you want to go into that? Are you sure. talking about yeah. fast action versus yeah? Yeah, exactly. And you know, and for especially for European nymphing, I've never been a big a gear buff. I guess like I like to get a piece of equipment that I like, and then I'm going to use that. And I'm not really changing uh, rods quite a bit. I like to to get something I like. But one thing that I really found, especially when I was when I was teaching the youth team was that the rod really did make a big difference in, in a few ways. And one of the ways is in European nymphing, and this isn't talked a lot about, but when you when you have a, a rod that isn't up to the task for European nymphing, you can really see it. And what that is, I call it recovery. And I don't know if rod manufacturers call it something else, but it's when you take a cast for European nymphing, you'll often see um, an angler's, rod tip will actually dip into the water even though they, they're pointing straight above the water. There's so much force into that cast 
um, that the rod tip will actually tip down. I've, I know I've touched rocks accidentally casting and wondered if I'm going to bust my rod. But then the part of the what I call recovery is the rod is bent down towards the water, and now it has to come and straighten. And the faster that recovers or comes to that straight point, the sooner you can come in contact with your with your flies while you're nymphing. And I've fished with um, some other people's rods as I was teaching them European nymphing, and their rod was just bouncing back and forth. And you know, it felt like it took seconds. It was probably less than that. But it felt like it took a long time for the rod to recover and come come to a standstill so that I could then become connected with my nymphs. If my rod is reverberating, then you can't tell, uh, you can't get connected to your nymphs and you can't tell if you've had a strike. So that's extremely important about how your rod acts. And then the, the kind of the flip side of that that has to be the, I guess, the counter compromise of that is you don't want a rod that is so stiff that it can't recover from a fish um, suddenly creating some slack in your rod. You want your rod to be able to take up that slack. And so there's, and again, I don't, I don't know if rod manufacturers call it this, but I, for, for me, what I like is a fast action rod with a soft tip. And uh, those two things uh, seem to be the right combination. I've used uh, Sage Z-Axis pretty much my entire competitive career because I feel like it, it gave the best blend of those two things that I want to bounce a fish off, especially when it's a smaller fish. Um, uh, what you, what was that rod a, again? Did you say a Sage? A sta- yeah, Z-Axis. I'm having trouble understanding it. What? Oh, I'm sorry. Z-Axis? Z? Spell it for me. Z, and then Axis, A-X-I-S. Oh, okay, the Axis. Okay, okay, got it. Yeah. Just so that everybody can hear it, too. Um, Yeah, that's what I, now, is that uh, the Axis, is that a um, European-style nymphing rod made for for that style nymphing, or is it? So it was actually produced before the kind of the European nymphing um, Mm -hmm. really got started in the United States. So they obviously make the ESN, and some of the some of the other manufacturers have um, specifics to that. And I've tried a number of those. Um, I am liking the lighter the lighter weight of some of the rods that are out there, and 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 part of that is a personal thing. And that uh, you know I got I frankly got an injury a little bit from from casting so much. I was literally fishing every day, and the heavier uh, heavier rods, even though they're still, you know, two or three weights, they're just a little bit heavier, and that started putting some strain on me. And, and uh, Cortland's uh, Cortland's new uh, European nymphing rod is quite a bit lighter, and, and I'm enjoying that as I've transitioned out of competition fishing, where um, I'm not quite fishing so much, but um, it's a, it's a little bit lighter weight rod, and it's not putting as much strain on my hands. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm thinking that um, that maybe some of these newer rods that were designed for European nymphing have, have you know, uh, combined the features that you just talked about uh, more so than the standard, you know, nymphing rod that we, we use all the time. So, um, absolutely. You, you have seen that of yeah, fast action, yeah. soft tip. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, do you make any adjustments? 
with your rod size, the backing, tippet strength, when you know for, when you're fishing for small fish versus when you might be catching a larger fish? Um, you know, I always try to think about what what size I'm going to be, what size of fish I'm expecting to catch, and and really that's where tippet um, tippet size really kind of goes into it. Um, you know, our, last year I was in Wyoming fishing the the Wind Rivers, and I I caught a uh, about a six inch fish on a six weight rod, and earlier in the day I had caught a 24 inch fish on a two weight rod, and so sometimes you just you just oh, no. mess it up. You think you know what you're going to be getting into, and you don't. And that that one day just kind of proved that. Uh, I didn't know what I was going after in those particular fisheries, um, but yeah, absolutely. I'm I'm always thinking about you know what am I going for if I'm on a lake? I'm going to be expecting bigger fish, and I'm going to be bumping up my rod size, uh, my tippet strength. Because um, that kind of comes in, uh, yeah, it comes plays a role when when fighting the fish and bringing it to the net, right? I mean, um, the goal is, uh, and I, I think we've got a question later on talking about this is. You know, getting that fish in before it's fatigued and getting it released again, so it can live to fight another day. And the exactly, and tippet yeah. strength. Tippet strength really plays into that, and you know, to me, tippet strength. There's probably three three pretty important points to it, and that is the diameter is going to affect how fast your flies drop through the surface. Um, in competition, one of the things that I thought was pretty important was I wanted to go with with the strongest tippet that I felt I could get away with considering how fast my flies would be dropping through the, the water column. And that was plain and simple that it, if I was going to get stuck on something, I wanted some pretty stout tippet to be able to pull that fly out of a, out of either a tree or off the bottom quickly without having to retie everything or go grab another rod. And then, then third, and I think kind of probably third in, in level is um, you know, being able to fight the fish. I, I think we have a much bigger advantage than we think we do in terms of, of the rods that we're using and the strength of our tippet against a fish. Yeah, and then then things can just go horribly wrong anyway. <laughs> I, was <just> in, <laughs> I was just in Belize in, in May, and I hooked up with a tarpon. I jumped him a couple times, and then, bing, you know, no more fish. I pulled it in, and and I think we had sixty pound tippet on there, and <laughs> and his you know, my guide said, well, he just cut it with his gill plate. <laughs> Simple as that. <laughs> you know, when he jumped, he just sliced that right yeah. there. So it's like, gosh, I never never expected that. You know, but uh, yeah. but anyway, yeah. So um, and, and do you find it's more the knots, you know, um, or teeth or gill plates or you know stuff like that that damages the tippet rather than the tippet itself i mean the the strength of the tippet you know when i was uh competition fishing and especially on lakes i became pretty aggressive about changing out my tippet and it, it became really apparent to me you know i was using six feet between flies and you know you can just run your your hand or your finger along your tippet and you can feel um even in a lake where there's you know there's no rocks you're not getting hung up in trees that you're um 
damaging your tippet, and you know this is brand new tippet, and you can feel that degradation, whether it's from uh, the boat or the the fish. But I became pretty consistent about changing out my tippet after every session, especially on the lake, because uh, just that little bit of damage from that, I think, really really weakens the the tippet strength. Then I think. You know, for me, that was a big thing. I'm also pretty anal about my knots. Um, I I think for the average fisherman, I think the knot is the weakest link in that I've seen knots tied, you know, either incorrectly or not seated properly, and and they just, you know, they've got, I think, a tenth of the strength that they should have. And, uh, I, I again, I'm, I'm really consistent about testing my tippet uh, testing my knots and making sure everything's where where I think it should be. You know, sometimes I see a client just lightly pull on their fly and their tippet, and it's kind of like, are you just checking to make sure it just doesn't come undone? Because I, you know, if you've got seven pound worth of tippet on, you should be getting that full seven pounds. And if your knot's going to hold yeah. two pounds, you're, you're really putting yourself at a disadvantage. Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna. Uh pause you there. Uh, I'd like to ask you a few more questions about that, but uh, time for us to take a quick break, and then when we'll come back, we'll talk some more about tippet and, and also reels and, and their effect on the fight. So uh, stick with us, folks, and we'll be right back. Watermaster is dedicated to providing their customers with the highest quality inflatables on the market, as well as unbeatable customer service and product support. They are best known for their signature products, the Watermaster Grizzly and Kodiak rafts. These rafts are lightweight, compact, durable, versatile, and safe. Watermaster rafts are everything your personal watercraft should be. They have been used by anglers and hunters all over the world for over 15 years, including Dave Whitlock, one of fly fishing's greatest innovators. Dave said, with my Watermaster, I can enjoy more fishing per hour than any other method I have ever tried. After two and a half years of testing 15 models of kickboats, I'm convinced that the Watermaster is the ultimate personal flotation craft for warm and cold water fly fishing. Visit Watermaster today and take a look at the ultimate personal flotation craft. Go to BigSkyInflatables.com. Again, that's BigSkyInflatables.com. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, and we're talking with Kurt Finlayson about fighting and landing trout. If you'd like to ask Kurt a question, just go to our homepage at AskAboutFlyFishing.com and use the Q&A text box to send us your question. We'll receive your question immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. Okay, Kurt, I always ask my guests, hey, what's going on in your fly fishing world? And uh, you said that you're retired from the competition, so uh, what's going on in your fly fishing world today? Well, um, I've been uh, fishing in Asia quite a bit. My job takes me there, and uh, so I've been doing that quite a bit. And uh, I've been looking at different species, and as you said in that introduction, I've been going after grass carp, which I've got. Uh, a grass carp since we last talked, and uh, sturgeon, which is the largest freshwater fish. I'm, I'm still on the hunt for them. And then as we recently talked about, I've been getting into this micro fishing for the, some of the smaller uh, species, which has been really interesting as far as the subtleness of those takes. And I've really gotten intrigued with that because I think that could be a huge help to uh, to our guys that are currently on the team. Um, you know, setting, being able to uh, identify a take uh, by a fish that's two and a half inches long, 
I think really gets your sensitivity up. So yeah, I've been I've been going after these different species. I'm, I'm a little under a hundred right now, so wow. I'm playing with wow. that. Um, yeah, what's a, is there a minimum size fish when you're competition fishing, or does does any fish count? No, there is a, there's a minimum size, and uh, gosh, you're going to put me on the spot because I should know that like the back of my hand. Um, it's 20 centimeters, which I think is uh, it's either eight or ten inches, but yeah, 20 centimeters is is the minimum. Okay. So anything under that doesn't count, which is huge compared to a two-inch fish. When a when a when a right. 20 centimeter fish eats, you know it versus a two-inch fish. So. Yeah, yeah, I like catching minnows. All <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, uh, interesting. I think did I see somewhere Hong Kong somewhere? And, yeah, so I I traveled to Hong Kong. Yeah, I tra- I traveled to Hong Kong quite a bit with my job, and uh, I I've been fishing out there. And oh man, for quite a few years I really struggled struggled in China and, and Hong Kong catching a fish, and then um, I started finding some people in the area that are amazing fishermen and uh, know the area really well. And so uh, that's where I got one of my really cool species was a Pacific tarpon. Um, I've oh. been going after an Atlantic tarpon here in the States. But they also they have a, a tarpon, but it's called a Pacific tarpon. It's much smaller, but it looks identical. It's It's got the big eye of a tarpon. It's got that the spine behind the dorsal fin. They're really cool-looking fish. Um yeah, lots lots of species out there that are that are really fun to fish for. It's it's definitely different um, kind of fishing. It's the water is not as clear and, and nice as our water, but you know they have snakehead out there, which I've caught, milkhead, some uh, some smaller bass and and stuff like that. But it's it's always unusual fishing. It's always just a crazy adventure because there's you know there's usually signs saying stay out of the water. And it's just always a crazy adventure. I could tell a lot of stories about my travels in, hmm. in China. Were you fishing on, I've been to Hong Kong, and were you fishing in places on the island, or you go to the mainland to fish? Um, both. So there's oh. there's some places, if you're familiar with it, there's, a, there's right between Hong Kong and Shenzhen, there's some really good waters right there. Um, I fished in literally, uh, it's called Taichung Bay, out of a... <laughs> Out of a, a plastic boat that I rented, a little a little boat, and uh, I was fishing in amongst uh, cargo container vessels. Um, so all kinds yeah. of yeah, interesting stuff. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's good. Fun. It's like I said, it's always an adventure. Yeah, yeah. Well, we better get back to our topic at hand here, and um, we were talking about uh, tippet and uh, you know knots. Um, uh, is there particular kinds of knots that you find work best and any really detailed, you know, like I read, well, you know, an improved clinch knot is five or six turns or a blood knot is, you know, five, six, seven turns. A- any tips you can give us on, on tying your knots and which ones you use? Yeah, you know, I I went through some, some research. Uh, I'm an engineer by training. That's that's why I was in the fitness industry, and and so I like to research stuff. And then once I once I come away with something, I, I feel pretty comfortable with it. And um, for me, I really like uh, the Davy knot, or I think some people call it a figure eight knot. Um, it's a very simple knot. It's extremely quick. 
And then this kind of sounds silly, but you don't have to lubricate it. And when you're fishing in international waters, like in Slovakia, where there's raw sewage floating down the, the river, mm. all of a sudden that sounds like a pretty good deal that you don't have to, to spit or put your tongue on your line. Yeah. So I, I really like the Davy knot for most of my uh, attaching flies to my tippet. Uh, it does tend to break down when you get onto bigger wire hooks in the, you know, like, I guess like a size, size eight, probably size eight and above. And then I start looking at some different knots. I really like the Pixon knot. Um, it's a good knot. Uh, all of the knots for um, competition are not allowed to be loop knots. So, you know, you can do improved clinch and things like that, but you're not allowed to do uh, loop knots. Now, that being really? said, um, as soon as I get into salt water and I'm, and I'm doing bigger stuff, then I really like Perfection Loop. Uh, I've, you right. know, I, I've been using that with Atlantic Tarpon. I, I've jumped uh, an Atlantic Tarpon, and he did not break off at that, so he broke off somewhere else. So I feel uh, I have at least one good data point that says that's a pretty darn good pretty done good <laughs> not. So that's what I use when I'm fishing streamers or or bigger mm-hmm. uh, flies like that. Yeah. What, and what about the blood knot? Is that something you use in your leaders? So for connecting, yeah. yeah. Um, so uh, further, I guess, higher up in my rig, it totally depends on what kind of uh, tippet or line that I'm trying to connect. Uh, if they're similar size, then I'm going to be using uh, four-turn four blood knots, four turns on each side. Um, for doing my droppers on a urinimping rig or, well, any rig really that's got a dropper, I use a triple surgeon's knot. Um, I think I'm starting to get a little lazy now that I'm at a competition and I'm dropping down to uh, two-turn surgeon knots, but I'm sure I'll pay for that at some point in time because, like I said, <laughs> I, did, I did the research and I know that a three-turn is much better. Um, yeah, yeah. But, yeah, those are, those are my attachment, my okay. tippet attachment. Okay, okay. Let's talk about um, reels for a second. Anything you look for in a reel, um, you know, so that you can use it to your best advantage for fighting? fighting fish? Yeah, you know, as long as the reel is going to hold enough backing, and um, especially in competition, the reel doesn't play a, a big part in it, especially in a, in a river. Um, as soon as we start talking still water, what I'm looking for in a reel is something that can that can take up line quickly. And, and I don't know if I'll be, ex- be able to explain this just talking, but what I'm after is to be able to just, uh, instead of, you know, literally using the handle and winding up the line, I want to be able to hit the bottom of, of my reel and spin up the slack as fast as I can um, while maintaining the control of being able to guide it with my fingers. So... That's something I look for, and I guess I would call that a free backspinning reel. Of course, making sure that it's not going to chew up your line. And, you know, there, there's some good reels out there and there's some bad reels. You know, one of the things that I've found is uh, fly lines can chew through a, uh, a reel depending on how you pull line off of it. So if you're, if you're getting ready to cast and, you know, everybody does this, they have the rod in one hand and they pull the, the line, and if you pull that line perpendicular to the the rod, it's really rubbing against the bottom of the reel, and it can chew right through that. And so I've really tried to get in the habit of pulling almost 
my line parallel to my rod out of my reel so that it's not uh, rubbing on that that bottom part of the reel. Mm-hmm. And so I think that really helps the longevity of a reel. Um, have you, um, what about using the drag? Are you a proponent of getting that fish on the reel? Uh, I mean, if it's any got any weight to it at all? Yeah, if it's got weight to it. I mean, again, in competition fishing, we're usually looking at smaller fish, and there's some techniques there for small fish that uh, you probably don't really want to take the time to put them on the reel. You want to get them in the net as fast as you can. As soon as a fish tells me that he's not going to come in quickly, then, yeah, I'm going to try to spin that line up and put him on the reel as quick as I can just so that I don't have any uh, line management problems, whether it's in a boat or just even this line hanging down in, in bushes or rocks or anything like that. Um, but, it, you know, it's it's not a very very often thing where I'm adjusting drag and, and making sure, uh, you know, my drag is adjusted correctly. Yeah, and, and I find, you know, really, these days with real manufacturers, there's so many good reels out there. It's I think it's pretty hard to find a, a bad reel. And, and you probably couldn't have said that, you know, in the, you know, yeah, in yeah. the 90s kind of thing. Well, especially Either in the trout world, world probably. Yeah, probably less failure in the trout world than the salt, you know, um, where exactly. you get the heavy fish and, and you get real real failures, you know. Real, real failures. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, uh, yeah, so so when you're managing a line and you, and you say you do have large fish and try to get them on the reel, any, it sounds like you, you, you just spin your reel to try to gather up as much line as possible without actually Yeah, failing. especially in a boat, especially in a boat, because there's just so much that can go wrong in a boat. You have so many places for your line to get caught or something like that. And so I just try to get that on the reel as quick as possible. Not not nicely, but just on the reel. <laughs> exactly. And and yeah. I still can, um, you know, with one hand spinning it and, the, and my other, you know, my rod hand or my rod index finger, I can still guide that on there and make sure I don't throw a loop in there or something like that because if that fish takes off again, um, yeah. there's a good chance, you know, if that's, if that's a little loose, he can put a loop in there. And so, yeah. you know, I, I'm trying to manage doing it quickly but also making sure that it's that it's going on there well. Yeah. Uh, Bill Henry in Brooklyn, New York, wrote in. He says, uh, have you fished with any of the new semi-automatic fly reels that are so popular in Europe and in international competition? So can you tell us about your experience? Yeah. So um, I started off with a, uh, a fiberglass fly rod that my dad gave me. And uh, the closest I can say to what Bill is talking about is I, I recently bought an automatic fly reel for it um, just because I, I liked how it looked on there and then I wanted to uh, try one out. Now, that's not what – I'm not sure exactly what he's referring to about an, a new semi-automatic fly reel, but that's as close to that as I've actually really fished with. Now, I know there's one guy on the Team USA circuit that's been using an automatic fly reel, and I've kind of played with that. It feels pretty similar, quite frankly, to the, the, uh, the old one that I bought. So I – I'm not sure if he's still fishing with it. I, I think he really liked it when he was showing it to me. You know, one thing is it is quick to retrieve your fly, uh, put your fly line on your reel. Um, I'm a little hesitant of it. As soon as somebody says something is automatic, I feel like I lose a little bit of control. 
and right, that makes right. me a little bit nervous. So I'm yeah. not, uh, you know, before the uh, show, we were talking, and I said, well, that first reel I got when I was like 12 or something was a, it probably, I don't know if it was a semi, I think it was an automatic uh, fly reel. In other words, I'm, now I'm wondering what a semi-automatic is because I'm not familiar with them. Um, yeah, that threw me off as well. Um, see, I'm seeing automatic, best semi-automatic reels. Because the automatic one I had would just draw in the line. You press the lever and zoop, up came the line. But you didn't have any, you couldn't reel it or anything. Right. I'm wondering if. Um, if there's a difference, I don't know. There's there's something I'll have to investigate that a bit more too. Maybe there's some that you yeah. can reel as well as as retract the line uh, and have the best of both worlds. I don't know. Okay. Yeah. Well, um, Tim in Oregon says, uh, in order to fight a fish, first it must be hooked. I miss quite a few fish. How do you explain setting the hook? Do you have variations in technique, or do you have one clear thought in the moment of a strike? <laughs> well, Tim, that's a good question. I don't miss fish. Do you miss fish, Roger? You what? I, I said I don't miss fish. Do you? Oh, yeah, right. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and no. how, how big was that last fish you caught? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, that's, that's a really good question, and, and I wish I could help him a little bit more by knowing a little bit more about of the, the problem he's having because when you when you ask that question the thing that comes to my mind is there's a lot of different answers to that question depending on the, the situation you know if, if he's talking about dry flies um, and missing fish you know my, my first thought is you know are, are you pulling the hook out of the fish's mouth too quickly because you see it you know, you start to see the fish and you're pulling it out. I think everybody's probably had that experience. Um, so, you know, there, you know, people talk about waiting, pausing, letting the fish actually take the fly uh, during the dry fly take. Um, if we're talking about nymphing, and I don't think it matters if it's European nymphing, indicator nymphing, uh, what, for me, the absolute biggest thing there is the fastest shortest hook set that I can that I can come up with um, and that's that goes back to that micro fishing you know those little fish man they can come up take a fly and spit it out so dang fast and and I guess it's because they just have such a such less mass to move around and, and they only have to move it such a short way but you know what I'm looking for there is a is a quick small movement and the reason I say the small movement is if there's not a fish there, I want to be able to uh, keep keep my nymphs down in the water. So I will do the tiniest of hooks set that's very quick, and if I feel some resistance to it, then I will actually set the hook, but it's a very quick, um, small uh, action. And then, uh, then I would, and I don't know if you want to save this for still water, but then, man, that gets me into still water, which I actually really, really love. Uh, the different kind of takes and the hook sets that are required in still water. Uh, I've got a technique that a friend of mine says he's pretty sure I invented. I don't know if I did or not, but it's on still water. 
and I call it fishing the curve. And it's when you drop your, usually it's doing it with nymphs, sometimes with a small uh, bugger kind of fly. But I'll, I'll drop the flies, and just as they're getting close to the boat, and they've finished kind of their horizontal retrieve in, and I'm starting to bring them up vertically, that transition from horizontal to vertical, for some reason, fish absolutely love that transition. Um, but what's really interesting is those takes can be just so slight. And uh, feeling those and setting the hook on those is a little difficult to explain how to do because it is, it is really, uh, I don't know, friends on Team USA have called it uh, uh, using the force. Uh, they've called it uh, fish farting on a fly and setting the hook. I mean, it is just, it's just such a yeah. light little take, and boy, it's fun though. Yeah, it's well, kind of like I have a, a lake down here, the, down the hill from me that I fish in a lot, and lately, a lot of caddis on there, and I fish a dry dropper rig, you know, um, with an, a you know like an emerging pupa coming up, and they're usually feeding on the pupa, and uh, but when they take that pupa, you know, I'm not feeling anything, uh, but I do see my uh, dry go down, you know. Um, Mm-hmm. But before that, if that dry wasn't there, I wouldn't feel them. You know what I mean? <laughs> because it's so yeah. subtle, like you say. Um, without that as an indicator, it's, it, it would be tough to, to know that they were there, uh, or they're they're and gone again. But I, I think yeah. maybe one of the things that um, Tim was referring to, maybe, and maybe you can speak to this. I, I just read Nymphant Masters by Jason Randall. I think it was, and uh, I think he was talking about. Um, Knowing where which direction you're going to set the hook, especially in a stream or river situation, uh, before you hook up. In other words, you know, um, are you going to set the hook downstream? Are you setting the hook upstream? You know, how are you approaching the fish, and you know, how are they taking it? Uh, is that something gotcha. you can you can talk about? Yeah, for sure, and, and especially in European nymphing. And um, I had the opportunity to fish with. Uh, Vladi Trevencio, and he was the uh, uh, world champion. I can't remember what year, but he was from Poland, and he really helped out Team USA in the early days as far as, uh, and at that time we were calling it Polish nymphing. And he was really pushing uh, me personally that I, when I was setting the hook, I was pulling straight up, and he kept on yelling at me, and he, and he was, was kind of hard to understand in his thick Polish accent. And I and I couldn't figure out what he was trying to tell me, but after a while, I finally sunk through my thick skull that he was telling me, you got to pull it into the fish's mouth. So as your flies are drifting downstream, the fish is fishing or facing upstream, and you want to pull those flies into the fish's mouth. If you pull them up, um, a if he's not there, you've just now pulled your flies up out of the out of the the strike zone. And B, you just have so much better of a chance of hooking them up if you're pulling downstream into the fish's mouth. So, mm-hmm. yeah, that would definitely be my guidance uh, in terms of nymphing there. Um, yeah, I'm not I'm not so sure on on, the, on a dry fly take. You know, I I think it's a similar uh, downstream take just because that's where everything's um, moving. Yeah, we, we could yeah. even talk about uh, wet fly. I think that's a whole other other technique that's kind of interesting. Um, I really got into wet, wet flies uh, in Oregon before a, a nationals out there 
we started really seeing that the, the fish were really keen into those subsurface uh, swinging flies. And um, before I went out there, I, I really was practicing that. And for me, that, that hook set was very different. And I'm, I'm sure a lot of listeners have, have seen or read this before, where you have just that little loop in your hand so that when the fish takes, you let them have that, and then you set the hook. So you just have a mm-hmm. maybe a, a three-inch uh, slack of line. And when the fish takes that, they take that, that slack, and then you set the hook. And, you know, that's obviously completely backwards from from nymphing because now you're you're pulling your flies upstream and so you you're, right. not, you're at a severe disadvantage right right yeah yeah and i noticed down here on the lake too when you're talking about dry fly takes you know i started now conditioning myself to wait you know what i mean you see them mm-hmm. sip that dry fly off the surface and then just wait a second you know and then just lift the rod because i think i think i was missing 50 percent of the fish because I was pulling it out of their mouth too soon. You know, it's just too, too yeah. they, they really hadn't taken it. I saw water move, but they, they hadn't, they hadn't turned their head yet. You know what I mean? Uh, to, yep. to turn away. And, uh, so that seemed to help me a lot, uh, just by pausing a second before I lift that rod. Um, yeah. and also not, and, and not you know, lifting it too fast, right? You know, like just, just lifting it to get the slack out rather than cranking on it. Yeah, rather than moving the fly. And, you know, I, I think that goes to uh, being really observant, especially with dry flies or fish that are taking dries. You can you can watch them and see, you know, what are they doing? You know, because you'll have smaller fish. They'll come up and just absolutely snap at a dry fly, and you do have to be pretty quick on those. But you also have, I mean, I've seen it a lot of times, you know, especially a cutthroat will come up and just, you know, really look over your fly and then slowly, just painfully, slowly take your fly. And so uh, if, you're, if you've got that observation in place where you've seen, okay, these are little snit fish, they're, they're just attacking the flies really quick, I'm going to have to be on my game, versus, okay, these are, these are big, bigger trout and they're sipping midges and they're, they're kind of looking them over, they're, they're holding their mouths open, you know, for for what seems like three seconds before they close their mouth and turn on it. I mean, that was an issue with the grass carp that I was going after. I was going after them with dry flies, and I probably had three that would come up and would not close their mouths around my fly. They were literally feeling my fly with their mouth, with their mouth open. And for sure, the first one, I ripped it right out of his mouth. I mean, I, I wasn't even close. Yeah, yeah. So I, what I about um, yeah? What about uh, nets? Net or no net? Uh, I'm a huge fan of nets. I think mostly for the fish. I hear a lot of people say, "Oh, I'm I'm a, I'm a great fisherman. I don't need a net." And and I I kind of think, "Oh, how about for the fish? I, I just watch too many fish uh, get beached up on the on the bank without a net." Or even trying to be landed in in relatively fast water, and and I just think you have to tire a fish out more to land it without a net. So I, I'm a huge proponent of a net. In competition fishing, they're required uh, that you present your fish. I, I can't remember the exact phrasing of it. I remember somebody uh, losing a net during a competition, and they they were trying to use their hat 
Um, and so from that point on, I have, I always had two nets, one on my back and one on the bank in case I, in case I had a problem mm. with the net. Well, um, Rick, uh, Wilkston in Colorado wrote in and asked, uh, he says there are many new and old types of nets. Is there really a difference in material, uh, they are made of and how do they help when handling the fish? Oh, that's a good question, Rick. And, and, uh, I, I'm unfortunately old enough that I remember nylon nets and probably have used them and and watched the damage that they do to fish, and so I, I'm not a fan of those. And, and, again, I think in competition those are strictly outlawed as, as uh, damaging to fish. Um, so I'm I'm a big fan of the micro-mesh kind of nets. Um, they're, I, I really, my, my favorite really is, is the rubber nets that you see a lot on boat nets. But those are just right. so big and heavy if, if you're if you're on the river and you know there's times when we're running on a river, and so I don't want a big heavy net. Those those but those big rubber ones I really like those because I, I swear I I think half the time you land a fish in those in those rubber nets and the hook just pops out, and hmm. so you've got all you have to do is pull the line, the the fly is untangled from the fish, you put the net back in the water and the fish goes away. But um, the next one that I like for for wading is that micro mesh. I, I think it's called like a tangle free micro mesh. It's it's a uh, I'm not sure the actual material. It's if it's a rubber or what. It, it kind of feels like a a coated rubber, and it's not quite as good for just automatically popping out the fly. But it is it's it's really good on the fish and. Uh, yeah, compared to nylon, we've we really. What about um, Bruce uh, Grandquist in San Diego wrote in? He says, "When net landing larger trout, is it generally or always recommended to net the, head, the fish head first? So, what tips can you give us about netting?" So, when I'm by myself, I, I feel like it is. He, he said, "Are always." I think it's always head first. Um, I, I guess I've seen guides go after a, a, a fish in shallow water with a with a big net for their client and kind of do the, the what I call the guide scoop from the tail. Um, and I've seen that work, and I think guides who, are, who have done it a lot, I think, uh, can do that. I think for your average fisherman to try to to try to get a net, uh, sorry, to try to get a fish tail first. I think that's pretty darn difficult. I mean, they just have such an advantage, and they're just going to swim away, right? Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, net and scoop fast. I guess. I mean, head head first and scoop fast. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Don't mess around. Um, uh, let's see. We had one and you know, while we're here. talking about yeah, yeah, go ahead. While we're talking about that, one of the things that I think is kind of interesting in in the competition fishing is. Um, we're really trying to get fish into the net quickly because we're on the timeline, but also uh, we're all very sensitive to the resource that we're fishing after, and we want to we want to put those fish back in as quickly as possible. And when we're talking, you know, 10 inch, 12 inch uh, fish, um, you can really put those in the net quickly by really putting a bend to your rod. And actually, if the fish uh, either gets up towards the surface or up out of the surface. You can do what we call aerializing the fish, where you're putting it into the net through the air, and, and with small fish, uh, it is just—it's such a, a good way to get a fish quickly. 
um, off the hook into the back into the water and uh, with with minimal handling and uh, I almost hesitate saying it because it sounds a little brutal uh, taking a fish and flying them through the air but in terms of uh, buildup of lactic acid and what you're doing to the fish getting it back into the water it's so much better on the fish and uh, and if and in competition when you're trying to to make the most of it it is a good technique yeah yeah um, let's take a quick break here and then we'll come back and we'll talk about positioning uh, you know when you're fighting the fish and so forth uh, got a lot of questions from uh, our audience to go through here so we'll have to we'll have to Move fast here, um, but uh, give me uh, 30 seconds and we'll be right back. Right. Fly Fishers International needs your support. Its conservation product projects at both the national and club level are addressing critical issues of importance to fly fishers. The organization provides grants to help rest with restoration habits like Wolf Creek in Idaho and Sands Creek in Upper Delaware in New York and funds projects that, are, that collect valuable data about fish and their habitats like the peacock bass study in Miami, Florida. FFI's core values remain unchanged to serve as a strong advocate for fly fishing in all waters for all fish, to preserve and to promote the arts of fly casting and fly tying, and to help ensure future generations can continue to enjoy these one-of-a-kind experiences. These efforts won't be nearly as effective without your help. If you're not already a member, we invite you to join Fly Fishers International as they work to cultivate conservation, education, and community within the sport of fly fishing. Join Fly Fishers International today and help support their fine work. For more information, go to their website at flyfishersinternational.org. That's flyfishersinternational.org. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, and we're talking with Kurt Finlayson about fighting and landing trout. Now, if you'd like to ask Kurt a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and use the Q&A text box to send us your question. We'll get your question immediately, and we'll try to answer it many of them as possible on the show tonight. So um, um, what is, how do you approach your positioning um, when fighting a fish? Because we never know when we're going to hook up. And I mean, you could be on a tall bank, you could be in the water, you could be on the shore, you could be behind a log. What, what is the best position to be in when, when fighting your fish? That's a good question. And and with uh, with European nymphing in competition, you know we're we're mostly going to be in the river, so uh, we, we usually wouldn't be up on a bank, which which I would strongly recommend not doing that. As soon as you as soon as you get up above, all, all sorts of bad things start happening from the get go. Whether it's the fish being able to see you or or your, your angles just get very bad when you're when you're higher than the fish. So uh, the first thing I would suggest is being in the water. Uh, the second thing that I think is really interesting, and, and I see a lot of different ways of doing that, and that is uh, when you hook up a fish, and it, it doesn't necessarily need to be European nymphing, it can be dry fly, but uh, it seems to that there's a natural tendency to, for people, and I don't know if it's because the, the water is running downstream and the line is, is being pulled downstream, but it seems like there's kind of a tendency for people to let their, their rod tip uh, tip downstream and then the fish is able to get below you. And for me, that's that's kind of a kiss of death if I'm trying to land a fish. Um, and so what I what I want to be is I always want to be downstream of the fish so that, that he's above me. And and in fact, I'll run downstream. I'll get out 
uh, towards the bank and run downstream to keep to keep him above me so that I can put pressure uh, to him on the side. I, I feel like as soon as he gets below me, uh, the fight just went went to him. Um, sure, because you're pulling against that current, right? So yeah, not only him but the current. Yeah, yeah, and and you know all, all sorts of things can go wrong, but but I will. I'll tell a story that I think is kind of interesting, and um, it was in Colorado, probably around your neck of the woods. We had a nationals there, and it was just so serendipitous. A, a guy on the bus as we were heading out was talking about how he had uh, a year or so ago had been fishing, and he he had a big fish, and it it got directly below him, and he said how he landed it was he just slowly uh, worked it worked it up towards him. He never really put any pressure on it, just just a little bit of pressure, and he landed it. And I kind of heard that story, and I was like, yeah, right, whatever. And uh, I was on the Roaring Fork. I was standing up about to my armpits in the middle of it, and a fish got below me, and it was, it was a brown. And I did that. I, I mean, that conversation had happened less than an hour ago, and I used that technique to land that fish in the middle of the river, in in the morning fork and i was like wow and i and i went and talked to him. his name's paul bork i went and talked to him and said hey thanks <laughs> that technique you told me got me the biggest fish of, of my session and, and got me that extra fish so uh that's that's definitely a technique and and as i was doing it all i was trying to do was was just kind of nudge him constantly upstream without really fighting him and uh it worked i, I it's not how i want to fight a fish but it, it's a tactic to to use yeah, yeah. What, uh, you know, how do you, you know, if everything's going your way, how do you actively fight a fish? Or, you know, in the salt, uh, you're taught things like down and dirty, you know, get that rod low and sideways, pull against them and turn them, and, and turn them back the other way, you know, trying to keep pressure on them. Uh, but what about trout where, you know, and, and let's say we, let's say we're not talking about little trout that you can just, like you said, pull and sail them through the air into your net. But, uh, uh, but you know, something that's got some weight uh, to it that, that is giving you a fight. Um, what's, your, what's your approach? And, and do you plan out the fight? In other words, if I hook up now, uh, are you planning on where you'd like to land that fish? You know, do you look that far ahead? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, that's probably the first thing that I'm looking at is I know that fish is going to have some control of the fight if it's a big fish, and there's going to be some things that I might not have control over. But if I'm going to land him, I'm going to land him where I want to land him. And so as soon as I as soon as I know I've got a big fish, I'm picking out a spot, and that's either going to be you know an, an eddy or some kind of slower water. If that is just not in the cards, I'll even use the eddy behind my legs, like like I did with that that fish that I just pulled straight upstream. Um, you know, that's flat, your, your legs create a slack water and you can use that to, to put them into. Um, but you know, really what you just said about salt water, I, I find very similar with bigger fish in rivers and that is, you know, as soon as they take, I want to be, um, in control of the fight. If they start to move a different direction, I want to move them against that direction so that they're always having to fight. Um, it's amazing how much, um, you can, think you're pulling on a fish that is really just sitting in the current. And if they're just sitting in the current and they're a bigger fish, you're not going to wear them out. And so you either have to move them or get them to move and fight against that movement. And so if they go left, you're, you're pu- pulling right. 
And uh, you also talked about down and dirty. I think that's an important point to talk about. Um, again, with my thick skull, I realized how many fish I was losing at my feet with my rod tip pointed straight up. And, you know, as a kid, I was always taught, keep your rod tip up, keep your rod tip up. And and I'm not sure where that, that little bit of wisdom came from but I'm not sure it's always the right right thing to say you know I, I guess I guess if there's weeds and there's rocks you want to keep your your line out of those obstacles but um, yeah when I I just remember coming to this epiphany where I, I lost this fish and I think it was the fish of this this session and I remember distinctly looking up at my rod tip that was pointed straight up and I was like I'm never going to do that again and so yeah. I, I really like to keep that low. And, and, I mean, if you just think about the the physics of it, as soon as a fish gets close to you and your rod is pointed up, you're trying to lift him up out of the water. And that's not good for anybody. It's just not going to bring him to your net. So, you know, all the way over, I'm trying to slide the fish into the net, which is, is trying to keep that as low as possible. You know, when you, when you first hook up, you may have a, a high rod angle, and that's okay because you're – the angle to the fish is is generally flatter, but as soon as he starts coming in closer to you, you're trying to lift that fish up, and you don't want to do that. And he doesn't want yeah. you to do that. You want to you want to move him vertically or uh, horizontally in the stream. Uh, Phil in uh, Kentucky wrote in and asked. Uh, he says, "What is the most important factor in quickly landing trout so that they suffer the least stress and will survive?" Let's assume that the rod used is a reason, is a reasonable match for the fish. So that after hooking the trout, I do not want to call timeout and get a 10 weight instead? <laughs> That's an interesting question. Um, yeah, that'd be awesome if we were using 10 weights on, on trout. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I think the most important factor in, in landing the trout quickly is is the, the tippet size and the um, uh, the knot strength or the knot, uh, ex- the execution of your knots, knowing that your knots are going to hold and knowing the strength of your whole system. You know, if you, if you know the limits of your system, you can go all the way up to those limits and get them in as quickly as possible. If, if you don't understand what the limits of your, your rig are, then you're always, you know, you're going to probably be babying that fish in and, and wearing them out because you're worried about a knot breaking or, or your tippet. And like I said earlier, I think we all very, you know, highly underestimate the strength of our tippet, of our rod, and uh, I, I think that's that's a that's something everybody needs to get a little bit uh, a little bit better feel for. Yeah, there is. Um uh, I remember talking, I interviewed um, Andy Mill uh, about tarpon, passion for tarpon, book he wrote. And uh, and he, in his book, and, and he talked about on the show about how he takes his rod and his, he, he rigs up his whole rod just as if he was fishing, and then he gets on his patio and uh, lifts, um, you know, weights with that setup so that he can mm-hmm. feel how much he can hold. And, and like he said, it was way more than he thought. Um, in other words, when he thought he was putting, it was too much pressure, he still had a long way to go to apply pressure. But he actually tested, you know, his different terminal tackle and, and the rods and just to see where that point was that he could go. Because that was important, especially with big fish like tarpon, you know, to, to be able yeah, to Yeah, absolutely. That. But, 
Uh, well, we should probably I do, do that. Even similar. Six X, yeah, six X tip. Yeah. You know, what what does six X hold? You know, put a put a weight on it and see. You know. Um, yeah, I do the exact same thing. I use a water bottle, and I just tie my line to that, and I and I break it with my hand and feel okay. That was that. I understand how how that how much that takes to to break it, and then I'll do the same thing without my rod. And then I'll use my rod in there, and, and it's like, holy cow, it's it's just amazing. I've done the other thing where I just have a friend hold on to it, hold on to my fly, and he's like, dude, you're not doing anything at this end. And uh, huh. it, it's amazing. Interesting. We think we're putting a bu- bunch of weight on there, and, and really we're not. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, um, well, you kind of addressed this already, but Richard and Ennis Montana – wrote in and said, um, when fighting a large fish in a river when wading, what should be the fighting strategy when the fish goes downstream? Um, yeah, run. <laughs> run as fast as you can. Yeah. I mean, you see a, you see that a lot in videos and stuff. You know, guys hook up and they're they're off to the races, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think it's important to not stop until you get below that fish. You know, it's one thing, you know, to chase after a fish. But if you stop before you get downstream, you really haven't accomplished what I think you need to do, and that is you've got to get below that fish. And, and you know, I, I probably missed saying this earlier when I said when people first hook up, they have this tendency to, to swing downstream with the rod. And so obviously what I'm trying to say is when you have that hookup, as soon as you get that good hookup, and remember what we were just talking about was hooking into the fish's mouth, which is downstream, Right. Then the next action is to flip back over upstream and pull right. to the side, Makes which sense. is yeah. which is kind of unusual. But that, that's to me that's the thing is downstream upstream. Uh, David in Colorado wrote in and asked, uh, "What's the best method to landing a huge fish in a drift boat when using a strike indicator that doesn't move down the leader? Uh, tying a breakaway type that is used in still water where your flies are down 10 to 15 feet." Question. Well, we, let's let's find out where David's fishing that he's catching huge fish in the drift boat. <laughs> well, that's another question that came in on the internet for you here. Uh, Phil wants <laughs> to know uh, the story behind that fish, the, the picture we've got on the website for you. Oh, um, I'm not sure I can talk too much about that, but that was uh, <laughs> I'll say it, uh, is in northern Utah in public water. So oh. that's probably as far as I can go about that, but it is in public. It is in public water. Well, I don't think he was asking oh, yeah. where, but was how you caught that fish. Oh, okay. Then I can talk about that. Yeah, that's a beautiful cutthroat, and uh, out of a small, relatively small river, uh, throwing streamers, uh, sight fishing to them. Oh. So yeah, that was that was really cool. Out of a small river, huh? So. Uh, yeah. Yep. Uh, size doesn't uh, always Yeah. yeah well, they're they're lake fish that move up move up the oh, okay. smaller rivers. So. Oh, like yeah, uh, we have those areas. in Colorado too. Those, uh, certain areas like uh, the Dream Stream and stuff when the fish move up, yeah, in the lake, yeah. Okay. Um, so back to the question, David's question of uh, you know you've got an indicator that doesn't move. I think what he's getting at is you got all this leader and indicator, and you can't reel it in, and you still have too much line out. You know, what's what's the best way to, to boat that fish? Right, and and there's there's just certain you know facts that he's that he's up against, and that is, um, 
you know, depending on the length of his rod, a, a longer length rod, we, we use 10-foot uh, rods on still waters. I, I think some people are starting to use 11-foot uh, rods, so that will help. Um, and we're, we're in a competition. We're not allowed to stand up, but he's, I'm assuming he's not in a competition. Standing up uh, gives you some more height. And then actually landing it, uh, I use a, we have a, a limit on the length of handle we're allowed to use. The, it can only be so long, I can't remember how long it is. But the longer that handle length is on your net, um, the further, the further you can get away from that. Or even another person in your boat that can help you out with that. But, but ultimately, you know, there's going to be some, there's going to be some geometry that he's just going to be up against, and that is the yeah. length of your rod and how high the tip of it is compared to where your indicators to your flies are. So, yeah. um, there's just, there's going to be a physical limit to that. Yeah, yeah. But hopefully uh, those, those little things will help. Uh, David in Fort Collins says, fishing tailwaters in Colorado with small flies. A lot of the fish, when hooked, tend to stay near the surface and roll in the current. What's the recommended technique to land these fish? Um, that's kind of an interesting question, David. I'm wondering why those fish are, are doing that. Um, it sounds like they're, when I see a fish, when I think of a fish rolling, it's usually below me and his head mm-hmm. is, is up out of the water is and how I think yeah. about that. So yeah. that, that's my first thing is, are, are you above or below the, below the fish when you're trying to land it? Um, then the second thing I would kind of think about is what is the size of the fish because, frankly, when a fish's head is, is – if I'm able to lift its head out of the water at all, then I am, I am putting all the force I can onto him and sliding him into the net because I can kind of skim him across the mm-hmm. surface of the water because if, if any one of his fins are out of the water, he, he's lost some propulsion. Yeah, so as soon as I see that, that he's near the surface, I'm going to really try to, to put everything I can to him and get him into the net quick. So those would be the two recommendations I have for that situation. Mm-hmm. And Bob and Merrill. You, you did say something about small flies, and, and I don't, again, I don't think that, that would concern me. Again, it's the tippet size. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Bob Maryland in Maryland, uh, he says, last fall I was fishing in, for steelhead. And after hooking up, I laid my rod over sideways at one point to put some pressure on the fish. The guide I was with hollered at me to keep my rod pointed high. What did I do wrong? <laughs> Sounds like he did everything right, right? Yeah, I mean, he's, he's uh, fishing for steelhead, and uh, he got one, so that sounds pretty great, Bob. Um, the only thing I can think of that a guide would be, would be yelling at him is if, if there, again, if there was some kind of obstructions in, in the water that he needed to get the tippet up out of, you know, if there was some rocks or some moss that he didn't want the fish getting into. Um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm kind of concerned, especially if, if he's close to, if he's close to your feet. Uh, like I said before, the last thing I want to do is have my, my rod pointed high. So uh, maybe the guide was having a, a bad day. I don't know, Bob. It sounded like he did, did everything right. I hope you landed him. Yeah, yeah, I hope so too. Um, we don't know the end of the story. <laughs> Bob, you're listening. You could write in and tell us. Um, last couple questions here on, on the streams, um, and this would be streams or still water. Um, you know, what's the proper way to release a fish and considering that you might take a photo of it as well, because I know you have some specific methods that, that you, you use. 
Yeah, you know, um, before I got into competition fishing, I was doing a lot of photography to, I guess, to justify how much fishing I was doing. And and uh, I, I met a guy named Tom Montgomery up in Jackson, and he taught me this little trick about cradling um, pectoral fins of a fish between your fingers. And I'm not sure exactly what it is, but in in the range of like even a 14, 15 inch or smaller fish, if you're able to to cradle that fish's pectoral fins between your your fingers, for some reason that really just calms a fish down. I don't know if it's because they feel like they're um, um I don't know like held. They don't feel like they're flopping around. Um, and uh, sorry, did I say pectoral? I meant pelvic fins. Uh, they're the they're the fins just uh, further down their body, but when you get them in that position, they seem to just to just kind of calm down. Uh, if you grip them too tight, that seems to get them excited again. But that is that is a great way to to get a fish to calm down and and get a good photo of it. And, and frankly, it shows off the fish really well because you're not covering up the the fish with your hands, and it puts less of your skin on the hand on the on the fish's skin. So. Um, and then, of course, uh, releasing the fish, you know, we want to put them in, a, in some slack water so that they can uh, start start breathing if they've if they've uh, been in a long fight. Um, but really, what I'm always after is getting a fish into the net as fast as possible, trying not to touch him at all. Hopefully, my flies pop out in the net, and then I can just pull them out, and then just dip my uh, my net into the water and let him swim out and. Um, there's, you know, people sometimes call them green fish when they when they come into the net, and they're still, you know, very very active. And for me, that's the best thing in the world uh, is yeah, having a yeah. fish in the net that's that's really excited, green, and getting them back in the water as quick as possible. And and you know, I, I love to um, to admire a fish and look at a beautiful fish because you know every fish is different. You know, you, you look at a brown trout and you think you know what a brown trout is and, and you look at, you know, their gill plate and they have that blue hue to them on there or the, the adipose fin can have that red on them. And so, I, you know, I love to admire them, but at the same time I want them back in the water as soon as I can. Yeah. I think the other thing I saw in your notes is that, um, uh, which made a lot of sense to me, is keep that net over the water, you know. Don't, don't hold that net over the bank, you know, or above rocks or something so that if that fish does jump out uh they're not gonna they're gonna land back in the water and not not on some hard surface so i thought that was a really good tip you had oh uh, yeah and and then i i think i also mentioned that i i really like to hold them over the net so if you do accidentally drop them they're landing yeah. into a net which is uh um, you know if you really want to take a picture of it you still have it you got another chance um, yeah. yeah yeah well um, we're, so, we're we're kind of out of time here kurt but uh, i wanted you to Quickly, as quickly as you can, address uh, the, the factors that, that differ in still water and how we might improve our odds in still water, considering all the things that we talked about today. Yeah, well, um, still water is different. You know, you're, you're going against bigger fish. Uh, you're in deeper water, and, and so there's a lot of things going, going against you. You have uh, other obstacles in there, you know, if you're in competition, you've got an anchor, you could have an anchor rope or drug lines. Um, so I, I always bump up, uh, bump up my tippet size. And, you know, uh, like, I, like we talked about before, I'm trying to get a, a fish onto the reel as quick as I can. 
so that I don't have, you know, just like you were talking about with tarpon, you, you got to have good line management. And, um, yeah, I, I guess I would say if, if we're doing this real quick, line management is absolutely critical, and that is knowing where you're where your line is at all times so that you can uh, manage that as quickly as possible. Um, you know, uh, I guess one other thing is uh, that I think is so different between rivers and, and lakes is that, that run that a fish makes once it sees the boat. And uh, I, I still find people are surprised by that. And, the, the, you know, I watch them break those off or they're just surprised at it and they, they're holding the line too tight and they break off the fish. But, I think especially with a bigger fish, as soon as a bigger fish sees that boat, which, you know, is generally in the, I don't know, 15, 20 feet away kind of thing, it's relatively close, they make that last run to get away, and it, it's usually productive if, if people aren't paying attention. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and you, I, you know, um, you know, you mentioned other things about uh, just, you know, you have more stuff going on in the boat, right, gear anchors potentially oars you got all kinds of stuff to to foul you up that you don't normally have around you so that line management and, and being clear of things is super important uh yeah and, uh, especially yeah. when you're talking bigger fish like in there like yeah. you know in a lake you're generally going to get into a bigger fish and uh you just have to be mindful of all that and you know sometimes the, the fish are fewer and further between and uh, you can kind of get caught sleeping a little bit and not not having everything in order yeah yeah we could probably go on for another hour talking about still waters because you got uh, pontoon boats you got you know and you're lower to the water in some cases and not up in a boat and all kinds of issues but we're going to have to call it a night we covered a lot of material and uh, stick with me kurt um we're going to do a few giveaways here and stuff and uh have you helped me out? So um, stick with me, and we'll uh, we'll uh, do just that. Um, All right, it's been a pleasure. Yeah, stay stay on with me here, just a couple more minutes, and um, let's see here. Hold on a second. Uh, okay. So um, one of the things we're going to do is we're going to give away a one-year membership to the Fly Fishers International and a one-year subscription to the Fly Fishing and Tying Journal and uh, a book of your choice if you get the question right tonight. Uh, I've got a selection of books from Stackpole, so uh, if you win, I'll give you a list and you can pick one. So uh, I hope you guys are paying attention and uh, and can win that uh, win that book. Um, family Ties. Yeah, Family Ties, that's T-Y-E-S, Family Ties is an organization which uses a shared interest in fly fishing and fly tying to enhance youth development and family relationships. They utilize researchers in schools, communities, and businesses, and they invite your participation. Go to their website, familyties.com. That's family, T-Y-E-S, dot com. Family Ties, where every fish is a trophy and every kid is a hero. Just a quick reminder to everyone before you leave the website tonight, Take a minute and give us your feedback on the show. You can find a link on our homepage in the section under tonight's show that says, what do you think of the show? Just click on that and leave your comments. We'd, we'd really appreciate it. So now we're going to do our drawings. Um, these, uh, what we do is we randomly select from the show's registration database the winners for this. If you didn't register for tonight's show, it's too late now, but make sure you do so for the next show uh, so you don't miss out on a chance to win one of these great prizes we have to offer. 
Now, um, if you are the lucky winner, we'll contact you after the show and uh, get your information and then set you up to receive your prize. So the first thing we're going to give away is a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International. To learn more about FFI, go to flyfishersinternational.org. Great organization to support and to be part of, whether you fish warm, cold, or salt water. Uh, they're there for you and, and provide all kinds of support and research and conservation efforts. So check them out. Uh, our winner for that is David Sanchez in Colorado. So, David, congratulations on that. And um, uh, we'll contact you uh, after the show on how to, to receive your your prize. Uh, and now we'll give away a one-year subscription to Fly Fishing and Tying Journal, which is courtesy of AmatoBooks.com. To learn more about what Amato has to offer, go to AmatoBooks.com. They've got uh, several different periodicals on fishing and fly fishing, as well as lots of books on fly fishing. So check them out and uh, see what they have to offer. And our winner for that is David Bond, also in Colorado. So we've got a Colorado contingent here tonight and as far as winners go. And um, congratulations, David. And uh, I know you'll enjoy that They're magazine. David. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so now we're going to give away a Stackball book. Uh, like I said, I don't know, I have about 15 titles here that I can uh, offer you. And um, so there's got to be something there you'll like. So let me clear my queue here. And you're going to answer this question on our homepage of our website in that uh, text box there. Put in your name, your location, and uh, an answer to your question and um, and uh, your, your email address. And then um, if you're the first person that answers correctly, then we'll, uh, we'll set you up with a book. So... This is going to be um, a two-part question. Um, part one is, uh, what was um, Kurt's favorite not to use uh, in his terminal tackle? And uh, part two is, what kind of material did he prefer in his uh, nets if it wasn't a rubber net? So two-part question make it a little bit more difficult for you guys. And uh, so now we've got a little bit of a delay here, Kurt, um, before they actually even hear the question. <laughs> so All right. but, uh, I'm here uh, manning the queue to see what comes in and uh, see if we can't uh, find us a winner here uh, for tonight's well, hopefully the, win the winner will uh, pick out the uh, Tactical Fly Fishing book by Devin Olson. That is an amazing book, and I highly suggest it. Which one? Tactical Fly Which? Fishing. Tactical, yeah, yeah. I don't think I have that one to give away tonight. <laughs> but, uh, oh, darn. Uh, yeah, but we've got some other good ones. Um, uh Okay, I'm starting to get some answers in here. And let's see what we got coming in here. Oh, we got one here, blood knot and micro mesh. That's not what I was looking for. Um, and uh, still waiting for a correct answer here. I think you made it too hard, Roger. 
think I made it too hard. Okay. Um, <laughs> sometimes I get so many answers, it's like, oh, that was too easy, right? Um, okay, because I still haven't had a straight answer on, uh, 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 let's just, uh, let's just, uh, let's just call Victor on the winner, uh, even though, um, he didn't get the knot right, but the other part was a little hard. We had to have a figure eight knot, uh, micro mesh, um, and a Davy knot with micro mesh. Um, but Phil, you can't put in two answers and hope you get one right. Okay, so you got to give me one or the other. <laughs> so, <laughs> and you can list all the knots, list all the knots, and then hope one of them is the correct one. Uh, so, um, so I'm not telling you which one is correct, but uh, yeah. But I'm going to give this one because Phil, you actually won last week, I think, or last time we won. So uh, we're going to give this to Victor Hahn. And um, Victor, uh, send uh, your address and your email address to uh, in that same box that you just filled out your shipping address, and uh, we'll get you taken care of. And um, and I'll send you an email, and you can pick one of the books out of that that list. So uh, thanks everybody for playing, and uh, we actually got a. Too late, Richard. You're too late. Um, <laughs> you got you got it actually right, and uh, yeah, now Phil, you got it right, and uh, but, uh, but too little, too late. So uh, it's going to be the Davy knot and micro mesh. So that's what I was looking for. So um, hey, thanks everybody for playing uh, and paying attention and uh, trying to learn as much as you can because that's what this ask about fly fishing is all about is to is to learn. So Kurt, we really appreciate you being on with us and. Um, Thanks for uh, uh, sharing your knowledge and all these years of being on the uh, on the competition circuit. Surely paid off. Um, and uh, thanks for being here. Well, thank you. It was my pleasure, Roger. It was fun doing it. Oh, great, great. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Our next broadcast will be on August 7th, 7 p.m. Mountain Time, 9 p.m. Eastern. And on that show, I'm going to interview Doug Gibson. And our topic for the show will be the Henry's Fork, a half century of fly fishing. Doug Gibson is a professional guide in Idaho, has been guiding for over 40 years on the Henry's Fork. After over 4,000 trips under his belt, he knows this river better than most. The fish in the Henry's Fork are some of the toughest trout on the planet to catch, but Doug knows the strategies and the tactics to get them hooked up. Join us and hear Doug's expert advice on fly fishing the Henry's Fork. We'd like to thank Fly Fishers International, Amato Books, Stackpole Books, uh, Whipbray Key Fishing Lodge, Baja Fly Fishing for sponsoring our show tonight. Don't forget to visit our website at askaboutflyfishing.com and make sure you're signed up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. Thanks for listening. Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We hope you enjoyed the show. That's it. Good night, everyone, and good fishing. Well,